All right, well, good morning. We are continuing our study through the London Baptist Confession in our Sunday School Hour, and we are hastily making our way towards the end. We are in chapter 22. Uh, this is the second part of chapter 22 um, on religious worship and the Sabbath day. Uh, the bigger section, of course, is God-centered living, the freedom and boundaries of the Christian life. Um, and if you will remember, it's been two weeks, but we've been talking about what in Reformed theology is called the regulative principle of worship, or the RPW. Um, what we saw a few weeks ago as we opened up chapter 22, paragraph 1, is that worship is directly tied to the doctrine of Christian liberty. Remember then that the confession builds upon itself. And especially corporate worship is tied to the doctrine of Christian liberty. Christian liberty in the sense, of course, being that the Lord alone, uh, God alone, is Lord of the conscience. And that uh, worship is to be tied to His Word, to His revelation. We saw how worship is to be God-centered. He is the object of our worship. He determines his worship, how he is to be worshipped. Um, and we concluded by the essential kind of thesis of that paragraph is that the acceptable way of worship is limited by his revealed will. His special revelation in his word sets the boundaries of worship for us, particularly in a corporate manner. Now we continued through this, we considered how we are not wiser than God. We rely upon the Lord to tell us what we need the most. Um, and so, to sum that up, the regular principle of worship is worship is what God has commanded in His Word. That sets the boundaries of our worship, particularly our corporate worship. And this is in contrast, the regular principle is in contrast to the normative principle. Now remember, this is all review. We're going to come back to this, but this is all review. Um, I put the chart up on, on the screen here. Um, the Puritans and Reformed theology, um, really Protestant theology beginning in the 17th century, God regulates worship. While the normative principle is Anglican and Roman Catholic tradition, where God doesn't regulate His worship, we just have to avoid whatever God forbids. So, only what God has commanded versus only what God forbids. And we considered how that's why in, for example, Anglicanism, you have incense and you have candles and you have vestments and you have the sign of the cross and you have holy water and you have all of these things where, well, these things aren't forbidden in Scripture so that we can, we can do them. We can, you know... So that's the distinction there, which we're going to come back to today. And the chapter concludes by forbidding um, imaginative worship, sinful inclinations in worship, so any sort of like sensuality in worship, or visible representations used in worship, visible representations of God, that is. So the regular principle versus the normal principle, and we've been thinking about the regular principle. Um, 
Today, though, there was a bit of an outcry last time. Maybe that's a strong word. There was a lot of questions last time after we kind of blitzed through that first paragraph. And so I want to come back to that today. And um, I want to give you not just what the confession says, but I want to dive a little deeper into what the scriptures teach. And so I want to build a case from scripture for some of the things you just heard. That's my goal today. Um, I want to show you from Scripture that God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. And I want to show as well, innovation in worship not only undermines true worship so that we don't profit from it, but it invites, it can invite the special judgment of God. I want to show you those two things from Scripture. That's, that's, that's the goal today. Uh, we're going to be turning to a lot of passages, so I hope you have a copy of the Scriptures handy. Uh, but let's jump in. And uh, oh, well, one last thing too. Positively, the regular principle of worship ensures us that we have the blessing and favor of God. So, those three things, right? He determines how we worship. Innovation in worship um, is unhelpful or dangerous. And the, on the positive side, though, we can give ourselves to worship knowing that we, when we do so in faith, we receive the blessing and favor of God when we stick closely to his word. It's all about the Bible. It's all about the Bible. So, the regular principle in worship. Um, my point here is that God alone determines how sinners may approach him in worship. And where this all starts, where it's all kind of codified, first and foremost, is in the Ten Commandments. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, the first four consider our relationship to God. How to love God. While the second table of the law, 5 through 10, concerns our neighbor. How to love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. Well, what do we see in those first four commandments? The first commandment directs us to the proper object of our worship. God alone can't worship must not worship any other God. Then the second commandment discusses or points us to the proper manner or form of worship. Okay, you must worship God, but you're not to make an image of God and worship that image. That's a way, an improper way of worshiping God. Uh, we talked about last time, the golden calf. The golden calf, if you read the narrative carefully, was not another god. Israel called the golden calf Yahweh. They simply wanted a visible representation because they didn't like not having a god they couldn't see. They wanted to picture him in their minds. They didn't want to hear a voice. They wanted something tangible, something earthly. So, the second commandment forbids an improper way of worship. The third commandment discusses or directs us to the proper attitude of worship. Right? The um, reverence. Not taking the Lord's name in vain. It doesn't speak most directly to just, you know, how we speak God's name. This, this refers, God's name refers to anything associated with Him. Primarily worship. So don't come into the worship of God in a casual manner. 
And then, of course, the fourth commandment directs the proper time of worship. How often should we worship? Was five minutes a week okay? Five minutes a month okay? Well, we're going to get to that uh, in, in future weeks. Uh, next week, week after. But one day in seven is to be um, the, the pattern for the proper time in worship. So God alone determines how we worship, uh, He is to be worshipped. And this is codified, first and foremost, in the Ten Commandments. But we also see, if we were to look at the Old Testament, in the Old Testament... God regulated his worship particularly because of his presence in the temple, in the tabernacle. And, and, that's, and that's a key point, a theological point uh, that we, we need to pay attention to. That the Lord again and again says, I am dwelling among you. And if I'm dwelling among you, I must be reverenced as holy lest I break out against you in judgment. Because the Lord is holy, cannot dwell with the unholy. So we see two examples here. We're going to turn to these. Um, two brief examples of how he regulated worship. Um, Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 32. And Exodus 25, 40. thought I had those up. I don't have those up. Let's turn to them. Deuteronomy 12, 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in your land, Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. This is the principle of Old Testament worship. God says, you're going to go into these, you're going to be surrounded by these nations. They're going to have very attractive ways of worshiping their gods. You think about how did the nations back then worship their gods? Well, what's reference here? They believed at times human sacrifice, um, sexual immorality, um, ecstasy of drunkenness, drugs, whatever, hallucinations. Um, they would build these particular altars and statues and idols. Um, all of, you know, this and many other things, God says, don't look to the nations as an example for how to worship me. Do what I tell you, and don't add to it, and don't take away from it. That's the regular principle of worship. Exodus 25, 40. Very simple verse. 
See that you make, this is talking about the tabernacle, um, the Holy of Holies, uh, the place of God's presence in worship. See that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown to you on the mountain. Um, if we turn to Hebrews, we would see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 8, I believe. Do everything according to exactly how I've shown you, how I've revealed this to you. So, in the Old Testament, and, and this is a very brief overview, but two quick verses to show you. From the Old Testament, God regulated His worship. And He regulated it because His special presence dwelt there. But these same themes are picked up in the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Oh, I do have it on the screen there. Paul is writing to Timothy, and as Timothy is a pastor in the church, he's giving directions and instructions in the church. And after writing a bunch, he sums it up and says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Uh, my point in bringing this up, and we could make a case from 1 Timothy, uh, beginning uh, really in chapter 2, where Paul begins to give specific instructions on how worship ought to be. Like men praying with whole, lifting holy hands, for example. Um, and he talks about the offices, he talks about different things. But here, what I want to point out is this theological motif, this theme of the household of God. This, this appeals to the Old Testament imagery of the temple, which was the house of God, the place of God's presence. Paul is saying, in the household of God, not in a building per se, but among the gathered people where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. Right, The same imagery of, of, of the Lord coming to dwell in the temple, the temple being the body of Christ, the temple being our collective coming together in worship. His presence is there. And just like he governed Old Testament worship because of his presence, this is what Paul is appealing to as well. The presence of God is there, and so it it. it necessitates a particular behavior. Uh, this is also uh, brought out church of the living God. This is, again, denoting his living, dwelling, active presence and activity. So there is a particular way in which we ought to behave when the church comes together. Let's continue on. If we turn to 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, but you see as well, you see as well that Paul gives very specific instructions for the church. When you come together, verse 26, talking about corporate worship, let all things be done for building up. Okay, there's standards here. Let there only be two, or at most three, verse 27, 1 Corinthians 14, 27. Paul's giving restrictions on worship. 
Don't, there, don't let there be more than three in this context. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Let the other one pass judgment. Verse 37, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. It's a command of the Lord. It's not my interpretation. It's not my preference. But the Lord commands and, and regulates his worship. So again, this is a general principle. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, we know speaking in tongues, uh, the giving of prophecy. Uh, there have been some advancements in redemptive history so that those things are no longer an active part of the church, um, the spiritual gifts therein. But regardless, the point is clear, at least in the sense of like, there is an order of worship. There are rules to worship. And the Lord, because of his dwelling here, commands that and demands that. Another example, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The important point of this passage is maybe asking the question, is there something in church life or in worship that is not in Scripture that we need? And the answer is no. Scripture is given so that the man of God may be complete. And the man of God, I'm not going to take the time to show this from Scripture, but it's referring to the minister, the ordained minister. The ordained minister doing the teaching and the reproof and the correction and the training the work of the ministry. The point being, again, is there anything that God has left out that we need? No, we're not wiser than God. This is the sufficiency of Scripture. Everything that the church needs is given in Scripture, and we don't have a reason to go beyond that. Well, I tell you what is really, really important for corporate worship is, I don't know, fill in the blank. Underwater basket weaving. That really brings people together and that honors God. Well, is it in Scripture? I mean, it's a ridiculous example, but you get my point. Are we wiser than God? No. Um, so, this is a brief, but... Both the Old Testament and New Testament bear witness to how God takes special care to instruct us how we may approach Him in worship. And Scripture is sufficient and complete to lead us into what we must know, what we must do, that we may be equipped for every good work. Um, so that's the first point. God takes care to instruct us. Now, of course, I'm not going to the New Testament at this point. We will get there. I'm not going to the New Testament and say, in, in making the argument, how has God instructed us? I'm just starting with a principle that he does. Secondly, though, 
Scripture also, though, warns us that innovation in worship undermines true worship and invites the special judgment of God. That's the second thing I want you to see this morning. We'll have time for questions. Let me get through some of this. So hang on to them. And by the way, before anybody asks, I am going to address David dancing before the ark. So it's always the one that comes up. Uh, 2 Kings 16, 10 through 14. Again, the point here. Innovation in worship is dangerous. We find in 2 Kings the story of a, one of the very wicked, one of the many very wicked kings in Israel. And we read this. When King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was in Damascus. And King Ahaz sent Uriah the priest as a sent to Uriah the priest a model of this altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all that King Ahaz had set, sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. Then the king drew near to the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt burnt his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offering on the altar and the bronze altar that was before the Lord he removed from the front of the house from the place between his altar and the house of the Lord and put it on the north side of his altar King Ahaz I have another slide here King Ahaz saw a pagan altar that he liked Apparently it was beautiful. And he's like, I want to worship the Lord on that altar. That sounds great. And so he copies this altar. He brings it into the house of the Lord. And what does he do? He moves the altar that the Lord had prescribed to the back of the house. And brethren, that's always the case. When we bring our own innovations into worship, what the Lord has commanded always comes to get put on the back burner. Right? Let's have music. Let's have drama. And the preaching and teaching of God's word subtly goes to the back of the house. And this is a very wicked thing that he did. He copied the Syrian altar. He moved it out of the way. He did not destroy God's altar. He still gave lip service to it. And he still gave lip service to the worship of God. I'm still worshiping Yahweh. I just want to do it with this, this altar that really tickles my fancy. This is nice. And this is the pattern of religious uh, syncretism that characterizes all the wicked kings of Israel. Innovative worship. Not turning to other gods, but worshiping Yahweh in ways that we want, in ways that we desire, in things that we think will really truly bring experience or inspiration or growth. Another example. Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus 10. 
I don't have the reference up there, but it's Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. We don't know exactly what they did, but we're talking about Aaron's sons. Like, these are big shots in the history of Israel. Aaron, right? Aaron's sons decide that they want to offer some sort of unauthorized fire as part of the worship of God. It wasn't forbidden, but it was not what the Lord had commanded. And God judges them instantly. Again, that principle all throughout the, uh, the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. You may keep that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your Lord, of uh, the Lord your God that I command you. So innovative worship brings judgment. More examples could be given, but that's enough for now. Oh, I do have the reference up there. Um, another example could be Mark 7, 6 through 8. Uh, we're not going to turn there because we read it and studied it last week. But if you'll remember from that passage, the Lord Jesus Christ says. Um, that you teach the doctrines of men. And thus, the worship is in vain. Because holding to the tradition of men, they leave off the commandment of God. So Jesus himself saying, when you teach, when you draw near to me, while your heart is far, far from me, what is the example of that? That is teaching commandments of men. Your worship is in vain. It's not really worship. Another example, Colossians 2, 20-23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Human teachings and precepts. Even some that are in the Old Testament, like do not handle. The Puritans called this will worship. Human precepts and teachings in worship that we think lead to greater wisdom, we think lead to greater asceticism, devotion to the Lord, self-made religion, we think they build up, we think they help, we think we enjoy them. Men acting wiser than God in determining for themselves what we think pleases Him and is good for us. This is what we're getting at here. 
So the regular principle of worship, God determines, instructs, reveals how we are to worship him. Innovation in worship, will worship, is likened to idolatry, which undermines true worship and can invite the special judgment of God. And this is the negative side of the argument. But what about the positive side? That's what I want to turn to next. Um, Pause this for a second. I think I've got the wrong slideshow up. Um, Questions or comments while I look this up real quick? Yes, Joshua. Yes. What's your question? Um, it's kind of like, so it's like, are you saying it's, I'm not, are you saying it's wrong to like use instruments? No, we use instruments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but like, I was, I'm kind of confused what you're saying. That's kind of asking this way. But like, basically, can you talk about Well, let me ask you this question. Um, Psalm 150, is that Old Covenant or New Covenant? Old. Okay. You know that also in the Psalms it speaks about making offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. Is it okay if we like slaughter a lamb up here on Sunday morning? Would that be cool? (laughs) No. Uh, There is an aspect in which we are to determine worship according to the covenant. Because the covenant stipulations guard our worship. Um, Now, that's a separate question. Obviously we use instruments. So... Uh, I'm not saying the instruments. Cody, you want to jump in here? Yeah, you're going to get to the distinction between elements and circumstances of worship. Have you already tackled that? Or when it comes to regular principle and what scripture dictates, we have, we have that distinction between elements and circumstances. Yes, so that's a great point. Um, if you heard what he said, we make a distinction between elements of worship and circumstances of worship. Um, An element is a form of worship, so something that we do, while circumstances are just that. They're the circumstances of worship. Yeah, exactly. We're like, like, what time do we gather and worship? 6 a.m. or 10.30 a.m.? Another uh, circumstance would be a microphone. A microphone is a circumstance that projects the voice, but it's not an element of worship. An element of worship is something that that directs our heart, our minds, our eyes, our ears, a focus of offering something up to the Lord. So uh, I argue that instruments are a circumstance of worship. The worship is the singing, but that's the element of worship. The, cer- the, 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 uh, the, the instruments aid the singing. Cody, again? Is it that we're talking about when we say scripture must dictate 
don't leave off uh, of wisdom, uh, right, the light of nature in man to make those decisions of like time, instruments, and things like that. Um, I'm really having trouble with my slideshow here. There's an error. I'm going to have to try to wing this. All my notes are in there. Joshua, does that help, I guess, in some sense? you have another question, Mark? Yeah, the, the, the application is the theological principle. Um, what, what I'm going to get to and what the confession gets to is that in the New Covenant, in, in the New Covenant Scriptures, we do get directions for worship. We, we do see um, exactly how the Lord prescribes us. So I, I would argue that yes, and, and that, that is the difference between Ro- Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, and Protestantism in the sense of Think about Roman Catholic theology. They bring over the priesthood. They have altars. They have, they have uh, vestments, which they appeal to from the Old Testament. They, they use holy water. Um, they, they bring things over from the Old Covenant. And they say that exact same thing. We don't need New Testament warrant for that. It's in the Old Covenant. And the Protestants are like, no, you can't do that. Because... The new covenant alone sets the boundaries for worship. I'm sorry? We, we glean the theological principle from the old covenant. Yes, absolutely. So there, there is a continual thread of theological, but the specifics, and, and, and that gets into the difference, and this is beyond what we plan to, what I plan to talk about today, the difference between um, moral law and positive law. Um, we talk about this, I guess, in chapter 19, but moral law is something like, that's shall not murder. Um, that's the same whether we're talking about Adam in the garden, whether we're talking about Abraham uh, in the wilderness, or we're talking about Israel in the land, or we're talking about Christians in Chattanooga. Thou shalt not murder is moral law. It, goes, it, it transcends every time period. And we don't even need the revelation of that to know it's wrong because it's written on our heart. Positive law is only what... A positive law, God has to reveal it. Um, in the Old Covenant, circumcise your sons on the eighth day. Like, you wouldn't have known to do that unless God told that, told, told uh, His people that. In the New Covenant as well, we see the same thing. Baptism. Baptism is, is a positive law. It wasn't a sin not to be baptized according to the Old Covenant, under the Old Covenant, but it is now if you... If you know that and you hear that and you refuse to be baptized kind of thing. So when we're talking about worship, we're in the context of positive law, not moral law. God has to tell us everything. And positive law is always tied to the covenant. So it's 
covenant administration. So we know, for example, in the New Testament that we read the Bible, we pray, we observe the Lord's Supper, we baptize, um, we sing. Like Those are things that are commanded, but also that we see the example of. It's tied to the New Covenant. And so it's improper then to take a positive law from the Old Covenant and apply it to the New Covenant. That's what I'm arguing. Yes, Mrs. White. Yes, so part of the principle is that we look at exactly what has been fulfilled by Christ um, so that those positive laws find their end and their goal and they're completed, which is, you're right, why we don't offer sacrifices because Christ himself is a sacrifice. But we also look at like, well, they taught and preached and they sang in the Old Covenant and that's not tied to the terminus of Christ's work. And so that also, yes, is part of New Covenant as well. But, but again, it, part of my argument is that Scripture is sufficient. And part of my argument is that the New Testament gives us everything we need for worship. Because we see what's commanded and we see what the church is doing. Acts 2.42 they came together for the breaking of bread, for fellowship, for prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That, in one verse, really is all of New Testament worship. And so we see the church doing that, but we also see other scriptures that say, Old Covenant stuff, don't do this. If that makes sense. Let's see another hand, Jacob. Go ahead. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now even the first covenant has regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, which infers that there are regulations for the new covenant. Just like there was for the old covenant. But what made the old covenant? The old covenant was, as you're saying, positive law, as opposed to the new covenant. Absolutely. And the book of Hebrews, I think, gives us that paradigm for it in every respect. Uh, let, me, let me conclude this with a positive argument. And I've kind of already said it, but when we look at the New Testament, sorry, my, my, my slides are messed up for some reason. Um, when we look at the New Testament, we see the early church doing very specific things repeatedly. Reading the Word, preaching the Word, teaching the Word, singing the Word, praying the Word, and even um, seeing the Word displayed through the two sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. Um, and if we really broke this down, we would see that worship in the New Testament is prayer with and for the church community. Reading and preaching of the Word, observing baptism and the Lord's Supper, singing hymns and psalms, spiritual songs, 
We see uh, them coming together to give an offering. So, um, you know, for the poor, for the needy, for the needs of the church. We see them coming together to confess their sins, to confess their faith, to um, share meals with one another. That would be the agape feast. Um, We see them responding to prayer and praise with amen. If you think about all the elements of worship, I think we can two things that we can derive from this. One is that we see the Lord bless that worship. He blesses the church in the book of Acts, for example, as they give themselves to these things. Like, that's an example for us to follow. Why would we not want to give ourselves to these things? If he blessed the church and acts this way, why would we not give ourselves to these things as well and expect his blessing? But the second thing, too, is we, we are a little bit limited by time. Like, if you put all those things together, that's a really full day. We don't have unlimited time. Why would we not devote our time, the time that we do have, to what we see in Scripture and to what God clearly blesses in Scripture? And that's the positive side of it. If He blesses these things in Scripture... Let's give ourselves to them. And we don't even have to worry about, well, should we include this or that in worship? We know and see what God favors and what God blesses. So I think, you know, the positive side of it, but also the negative comes in in the sense of, you know, whether the regular principle or not, can't we all acknowledge that the modern church is tends to be, in many ways, shallow and superficial, in part because of the additions or subtractions in worship. Let's replace the preaching of the Word with with videos. Let's replace the preaching of the Word with drama. In many respects, there is a moving aside of what we see in Scripture in favor of things that are more innovative, more relevant, going to get people in the door, going to minister to me more particularly. And why would we not give ourselves to what we see in God's Word that He commands, but also that He blesses? So that's the the positive side that I wanted you to see there. Uh, I was going to bring up the question of David dancing with, before the ark, and again point, that goes back to Joshua and Mark in some respect. Uh, David danced before the ark, and then the next, the next verse says he offered sacrifices on the altar. Um, and in the context of that, they're dancing and rejoicing because they just won this war, and you know, in the Psalms even, they hold their weapons up in the air. Like There, there are things... You can't just pull that into the New Testament and say, well, David danced before the ark, so we can dance before the ark. Just because he did something doesn't mean God's blessing it. Just because he did something doesn't mean God is commanding it. Rachel?
Yeah, no, I, it, I would certainly not say there's anything sinful or wrong about that. And I've gotten that question a lot. What is the appropriate level of emotion in worship? Are we allowed to raise our hands? Are we allowed to swing? Are we, you know, uh, those things, um, I, I think... We need to remember, and 1 Corinthians 14 is a helpful guide here. Just because something is permissible in private doesn't mean it's best for the building up of the congregation. And we see in the New Testament the emphasis being on corporate. Corporate. And doing what serves best to build up corporate. And so in that respect, I think we do need to be careful not to approach worship in an individualistic manner. As if it's about my experience with God instead of our experience. We need to be careful about not drawing attention to ourselves in an improper way. That's, that's, that's not me saying those things are wrong. I'm just saying those things ought to be in our minds as, as part of our guide. Um, and I, what I was going to say about David dancing before the ark. If you want to go home and dance before the Lord. Um, I'm not going to tell you that you can't. Uh, I am going to say that I don't think that's appropriate in corporate worship. Um, but that's not to say that something, according to your own conscience, may be appropriate in private worship, if that helps. Uh, Melanie? I was thinking about David.